be speaking to Reverend Ruth Scott, an Anglican priest and Quaker who works as a facilitator and mediator in conflict transformation. Welcome, Reverend Scott. Thank you. What do you think causes communities to become more divisive? Maybe there are two main things. One is that there is inequality, perceived and real, and that if you see that some other group within your community has something which you don't have and you feel you have a right to, then that can create difficult uh, reactions. Uh, And secondly, I think um, alienation, so that where people don't mix and don't get to see the person behind the position, it becomes easy to dehumanise that which you see as other. And as you dehumanise other people, then it becomes easier to project onto them all the things that you think are wrong. Uh, and from that to move into conflict and sometimes violent conflict. Mm. Um, and some commentators are worried about a recent spike in group enmities, uh, racial or religious hate crime, for example. Do you share their concerns? I think wherever um, there is racial hate crime or, or crime of hate for any reason, that is a cause for concern. And the key thing then is to try to understand what lies behind that. So it's not enough to condemn it. The, the key thing is understanding why it's there. Understanding why those individuals have felt so alienated. And sometimes there may be reasons for that and sometimes there may not be. But the critical thing is understanding because when you understand, then you can begin to address it in an appropriate way. Mm. Uh, What do you think are the most serious challenges to social cohesion in Britain today? I think it's the alienation and the not understanding between different communities. Uh, So until we have the capacity to work with our conflicts, uh, to work with the things that we find difficult, to uh, challenge our own assumptions or the assumptions of others about who each is, Uh, then we are going to have increasing tension. And uh, for many people, I I suspect, we're not brought up knowing how to deal with conflict, um, how to have the difficult conversations. And it becomes easier to leap to attack because we don't know how to have the difficult conversations uh, than it is to try to work through those problems. Um, What role do you think that education has to play in promoting uh, a more tolerant, inclusive, peaceful society? I think it's critically important. And when I was working as a school chaplain, um, that we brought restorative justice practices into the school to try to help equip the students to have the difficult conversations with each other when they fell out, to look at the impact of that, to look at different ways that they might respond to it. Uh, And until we embed those behaviours, then we're not going to create adults who can work with the complexities of modern living today, because it is complex and it is confusing, uh, and it feels quite threatening, and the more people feel threatened, the more they become entrenched into their default positions, their secure positions, and that in itself can lead to further conflict. So do you think our education system places enough emphasis on helping young people to think critically about these issues? Um, I think from my experience that many schools are doing a tremendous amount of work to work with that. At the same time, I also think that our education system fail certain groups of people that uh, some people do not thrive within our present education system and and that becomes part of the road to feeling not part of society 
Um, so I want to affirm teachers hugely because I see the amount of work that they do and particularly in the various programmes um, that are very much geared to enabling students to live and work socially, communally and, and to express their gifts. Um, but I think there's a huge amount of work to be done because we are failing some groups within society. Why do you think that is, or, or what do you think we could do? Because I think that, that children have many different learning styles, and if your learning style fits the pattern of education in the schools in your locality, that's fine. But if you're a child maybe with um, dyslexia, or attention deficit disorders, or who needs to be active, moving as a means of learning, um, the school setup isn't necessarily geared to helping you in large classes and however gifted the teachers are and and that I think then becomes one step towards problems later and, and I have a, a husband and two children with dyslexia and I, I know how difficult it is for them to flourish within the school system. Yeah. Uh, what do you think are the particular challenges facing young people more broadly in society today? I think they are confronted with uh, complexity and um, being adults before they've been able to flourish as children and they've had to face insecurities that I certainly as a, a teenager don't remember having to face and my kids have had to deal with uh, issues of bullying or insecurity around the world in which they're living. The internet has a, a crucial role to play in terms of what it exposes young people to and what they have to deal with. My kids have had to deal with drug issues that were never part of my childhood and how do we equip them, A, to be young adults with all the complexities around them, but also how do we enable young people to exist as children and to flourish as children before having to deal with all of that. Do you think mistrust and prejudice occurs when there's too little opportunity for people from different walks of life to meet? Yes, because if you meet the other, you can put a human face to them. Uh, and it's strange, isn't it? We have the capacity to have a huge range of communities. We can connect with people on the other side of the world through the internet. And yet what seems to happen is that people connect with others like themselves in other parts of the world. Uh, and unless we make the connections between those with whom we're familiar and those with whom we're not familiar, then how do we understand where they're coming from and who they are? So in my work, often I'm dealing with um, communities where they've lost sight of the person behind the position. Uh, and once you've created that distance, it's much easier to project all kinds of assumptions uh, and characteristics on the other that may not be their reality at all. Mm. I mean, do you think dialogue has a role to play in, in combating mistrust and prejudice and bringing people together? I think it's absolutely essential. Uh, and, and creating the spaces in which um, creative dialogue can happen because uh, if you bring people together you can very quickly uh, end up with diatribe, not dialogue. Uh, so you need to create the context in which they can have constructive conversations and to be able to speak honestly about that which they may have very different views about uh, and need to articulate that because until you understand why somebody stands where they stand um, you can't get a sense of their position and their humanity and what makes them tick. 
Do you think it's possible or right to tolerate different views without respecting them? I think it depends what you mean by those words. If by tolerate you mean to have the kind of space where you make room for diverse views Mm. in order that people can explore them and uh, discuss them, then I think that's really important. Again, with respect, how can we respect somebody who may have done something really damaging to us? That's a hard thing to ask Mm. of us. But actually, we need to respect the right of each person to tell their story. Uh, So whenever we're bringing people together who come from very different perspectives and sometimes have been in major conflict with each other, uh, then we can't ask them to respect the other person for what they have done, what they've stood for, Mm. but we can ask them to respect the other because they have a story to tell, as we want them to hear our story. And how do you think that plays out in our relationships with people who hold different views from our own? I think we need to acknowledge that it is complex and messy. Mm. So none of these things uh, fit into neat categories. Uh, So it's going to be costly. And that conversation, dialogue, really trying to be honest and so far as it's possible for us to do that uh, within a a safer context as possible is ultimately the only way that we can deal with our conflicts so that we know from history that you can go and you can fight but at some point you have to come to the table and if people can come to the table before they get to the fighting um, then that's so much better and and in Cumberland Lodge uh, one of its um, key things is about bringing together people with different Mm -hmm. perspectives to hear one another and to really listen uh, to give space to a view that you may disagree with profoundly, but to tease out what it really is about and what lies behind it. Mm. I mean, Cumberland Lodge, as you say, is a place for dialogue. What role do you think dialogue across social and professional boundaries can play in addressing social divisions? Mm. I think when we always stay with people who are like us, uh, then in a way we create ghettos of understanding. Um, And I know for myself that my own views, my own perceptions, my own assumptions, and have constantly been most challenged, most helpfully challenged, by people who don't have my assumptions, don't share my perceptions, who come from a completely different experience, because they will ask me the questions that the people in my own community wouldn't think of asking because we share the same assumptions. That cross-fertilisation of ideas um, and experience is, is enriching, and it takes us out of our comfort zone. But I think it's only when we go out of our comfort zone that we can test out whether the things that we hold to be important actually remain important in wider contexts. And then we can either let go of them if they don't, rather than hold them to ourselves in a way that cuts us off from wider reality. Hmm. What first brought you into contact with Cumberland Lodge, Hmm. the Educational Foundation? Hmm. I don't know how many years ago it was now, but I've been doing some work at St George's house uh, Mm -hmm. at the castle uh, and met Alistair uh, Niven who was a previous principal here and uh, Alistair asked me to come and do some input in one of the conferences here and then I became involved with the academic consultative council Um, and then that led to other talks and various degrees of input into different things and then Ed's now taken over as the principal and he's continued to involve me and it's a huge joy and delight coming here and I think that the subjects that are looked at um, and the different people who are brought together to explore 
major issues is, is uh, something that is immensely creative and life-giving. Thank you very much for your time today. That brings us to the end of today's podcast from Cumberland Lodge. To find out more about the educational and charitable work of Cumberland Lodge in Windsor Great Park, go to cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. This recording was made in 2017, the 70th anniversary year of Cumberland Lodge as an educational foundation.